Hey, ladies, I'm Jen Chappelle, and you're listening to In Sisterhood, where I share my real talk conversations with female entrepreneurs and other inspiring women, first here in Knoxville, then the world. I've got some exciting news today. Here's the drum roll. (laughs) That didn't work. I practiced it too. Let me try it again. We've got merch. Starting today through the end of the month, you can place a pre-order for some Insister swag. The lovely and talented Paris Woodhall created a custom design for us, and I'm in love with it. You can choose between a gray or a red v-neck with Paris's design on it, and we've also got a tote bag that you can add on. Through this whole process, it's been really important to me to get these products ready for you in ways that align with my values. So we're using a local company, nothing too fancy for the printing. And the shirts are by a brand called All Made that I think is doing really great things for the planet and for the people making their shirts. And then the tote bags, I chose some that are made from 100% recycled cotton canvas. I personally can't wait until these are ready. So here's the details again. You can pre-order now through September 30th on our website, insisterhoodpod.com. Just click on merch to get to the online store. And once the pre-order closes, the items will be ready two to three weeks after that, around mid-October. If you happen to be one of our patrons on Patreon, Look out, because I'm about to throw a discount code your way. And if this was an Instagram story, there would be a gif of somebody dancing, like I'm dancing right now. (laughs) Does anybody else think in Instagram stories? (laughs) It might be a sign that I need to spend a little less time on my phone. Anyway, let's get on with it. Okay. Whew. My guest today is Kim LaMonaco. She's the co-owner of Glowing Body Yoga and Healing Arts, where she also leads yoga teacher training, teaches three classes per week, and offers Thai yoga massage. When she's not at the yoga studio, she's either working as a speech-language pathologist in an acute care setting or co-parenting her young son. I've known Kim for many years, and she was actually the person who encouraged me to start teaching yoga way back when. We've witnessed each other's big life milestones like marriage, pregnancy, motherhood, and new business ventures. I respect her thoughtfulness and her skill, and it was so great to catch up with her last week from her closet. She was in her closet. I wasn't in her closet. So please tighten up the old earbuds. Here's me and Kim chatting on In Sisterhood. (laughs) 
You're in your closet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am. I'm in my closet. I have found this to be the most soundproof, cocoon-like place in my house. So I have actually sat in this closet many times, but it makes sense for today while recording mm-hmm. to be in here. Is it a is it a large closet or is it like a normal sized closet? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know a realtor would call it walk in because you can actually mm. step inside of it and peruse your things. But <laughs> it's not it's not what I think of as a walk. I mean, I think of a walk in as like basically another room. Mm. This is it's it's a closet. It's kind of comical, like how little space my stuff takes up in here. Um, yeah, I clearly was not the intended audience for a closet like this. <laughs> That's why you fit so comfortably in it. Yes. Yeah. There's plenty of room for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you have always made a really comfortable home in the two homes that I've known you to live in so far. I haven't seen this, this home that you're living in now. Um, is it like, did you make it cozy right from the get go? No. Well, yes and no. I mean, I didn't have a lot of resources at the time to fill it in with all the things I like. So I've been in here for about a year and a half. And over time, I've done things like paint the walls, which for me, a place doesn't feel like home until I've painted the walls. Like I, I am not a fan of grayish. I'm not a fan <laughs> of whites. I've not a fan of anything like that. I like, like my living room is a bright coral color and Mm. like really strong coral color. So that, and most people who know me who have been here and seen that are like, aha, this is a very Kim room. So, um, that's what, that's what tends to make me feel really at home is once I've painted the walls at least. Mm -hmm. What kind of like color would you, would you say you're a coral if you, if you had to be a color? What color would you be? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think coral generally looks good on me, but I maybe a green. Hmm. I think maybe a green would be my uh, my number one choice. I actually, when I was young, um, growing up, I I really did like disliked pink growing up Mm. because I felt like it was such a cliche for girls to like pink. Mm -hmm. And I just, I would never have like picked a pink shirt or I didn't particularly care for the pink toys and things like that. I don't know why. I just, I was always kind of averse to that. So it actually feels like kind of an adult um, thing now that I'm like, okay with pink. Mm -hmm. I even like it in some contexts. Not all contexts, only some. No, not all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's some pinks that are pretty obnoxious in my mind. Just like there's some yeah. oranges that are pretty obnoxious. Mm-hmm. There's some pinks that are obnoxious in my mind. Well, you recently had a birthday. Yeah. Um, happy belated birthday. How did it go? Was it fun? Did you did you celebrate COVID style? <laughs> yeah, yes. No. I I um I actually have my brother and sister in law are expecting their second child, and. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so the, and they're, it's due, she's due any day now. 
And so I took the opportunity because I had blocked out the schedule, my schedule for my birthday and went up to see them, um, before they deliver. We had like the talk about whether it was okay and you know, what parameters we would take and all that. And everybody was cool with it. So I went up and I actually gave both of them massages, my brother Mm. and my sister-in-law while I was there. So that's how I spent my birthday. (laughs) Is giving massages, but that's sweet. That's sweet. Well, it was the day I had free and yeah, they needed it. So it makes me happy. It makes me happy to do stuff like that to to especially body work. It feels good to me too. So Mm -hmm. it was a win-win. Well, so right now, do you still work in your healthcare job? Yes, I do. Okay, so tell us what like what your scheduling mix is like <laughs> from week to week or so. Um, I spend on average, uh, I'd say two days a week, give or take, doing speech language pathology in hospitals, um, in acute care settings, and. Then I share um, time with my ex and my taking care of my kids. So we split about 50-50. And so the days I have him, I do my very best to spend as much time with him as I can. So I'm kind of, kind of stay-at-home mommy those days. Um, mm-hmm. Although he gets hauled around a fair amount. He comes to the studio often. And then the rest of the time... I'm dedicated to the studio and that might mean seeing, um, massage therapy clients. It means teaching three regularly scheduled classes a week. Um, and I also direct our teacher training program, which right now is meeting one to two times a month. And, um, so I have to do preparation and then of course execution for that. And that's, is that totally online? Now it is. Now it is. We're, we're mm-hmm. adapting. <laughs> my, <laughs> first, my first response when all this hit early in the year was to just postpone. It's not that I, I don't think that I had any unrealistic expectations about uh, the virus really taking a long time for us to be able to like go back to in-person things. So it wasn't, I don't think I was like in denial, but I, but I, was dealing with so much, um, in terms of shifting our studio business model and also figuring out how to make money myself, um, Mm -hmm. that I just was like, I can't handle doing this right now. I can't handle. So we postponed the training and just resumed really. We had a few like online calls and things like that, but we really just resumed, uh, in August and we did two weekends in August and we did them all online. Um, and that's the plan for the foreseeable future. There are enough folks in the group that have reasons to not feel comfortable being in person, even if we're masked and even if we're outside. Um, and so I wanted to be as inclusive as possible and online meant that. How do you feel about like what, what, what limitations have you noticed in teaching yoga to people that want to be teachers of yoga, uh, online, you know, obviously you can't like do a whole lot about like hands-on adjustments. Not that anybody really 
wants to be like touched by another person right now. There are some people that want to be, want that compassionate touch. Um, but yeah, like what's, what is it like teaching that over, over zoom or whatever platform you're using? Uh, well, I should start by saying it's really a new skill set for me. And I don't necessarily think that I have exhausted figuring out all the best teaching methods online. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I have figured that out entirely yet. But, um, you know, the teacher training content uh, does include a heavy practice component in terms of expectations of the participants doing yoga practice. But we actually assign a lot of that as outside work and they have access to classes in the studio to accomplish that. And they're also expected to do some practice on their own. Um, and a lot of the content of the program extends into like philosophy or lifestyle, you know, observances or, uh, history studies or anatomy and physiology studies. And, you know, a lot of that can be accomplished with lecture, with breaking people out into small groups and having them complete small group assignments, um, online. And of course, you know, having resources that I put on the screen as far as, um, things to demonstrate points like, like images or graphics, things like that. You always seem to, um, you know, like when you, when you go to teach most of the time, you seem to have everything really together. You seem to be very professional, prepared. You're an, an excellent communicator. Um, you know, you're used to being in front of groups of people and teaching. Um, but you know, like, when you try something new, AKA teaching online, um, you know, there, there can be an element of, um, like anxiety or nervousness that it's not going to go well, or, um, you know, having to roll with the punches if there's some sort of a glitch. Can you talk about how you, how you used your yoga practice to kind of prepare you for those kind of events? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely feel like I'm challenged in all of my line of work, all of my different lines of work to um, really exercise all the different skills I have and to develop them and to also have a high degree of self-awareness and humility, like knowing things won't always go right. I'm going to make mistakes, things like that. I will say that leading the teacher training, um, to me feels like I, it, it's something that I hold in high esteem. Um, I take it really seriously because to me, this is sort of a, a way to empower in a grassroots way, people to take ownership over practices that are good for them and that help them be a more like whole feeling, healthy feeling person. And so I do put a lot of pressure on myself to deliver something that's high quality, but also isn't too um, philosophical and, and too out of reach. Like I don't want people to go away, you know, learning a lot of Sanskrit terms, but not really know how to apply it and have a felt sense of, of what these 
concepts can do for them. So that's a pretty lofty goal to have with, with a topic that's so broad and can take so long to really internalize. And I definitely, with the online teaching, had a lot of um, anxiety and a lot of fear about not being able to deliver that effectively. Um, and so I can't say that I necessarily prepared in, in any different way than I would in any other weekends, um, other than like familiarizing myself with the online tool and making sure I knew how to run zoom and all that. But, um, I would actually say a, a heavy portion of what I do in preparation for teacher training weekends is to just get really grounded get really in touch with myself so that I can be organized, but also open to channeling the knowledge that I, that I know I have, uh, kind of getting out of my own way and acknowledging that I have high expectations, but that what, what needs to happen will happen and that I can, I can trust myself to just let that come forth. And, and usually throughout the course of the weekend, there, there is this moment where I'm like, Oh, like I'm, I'm built to do this. Like I, I know I can do this. I know that I can deliver this in a good way. And that doesn't mean that I'm the right teacher for every person. Uh, there's certainly you know, different learning styles, different needs. And I, I definitely don't meet the needs of everyone. Like I, I am not a very, I don't know if this is the appropriate use of that word, but I'm not a very authoritarian teacher. Hmm. I think of authoritarian as be like, you lay out the rules and everyone's expected to follow the rules. And there's a, there's a structure and a timeline. Like I'm not that way. And I know that some people really thrive in having very strong parameters and expectations and lots of structure provided to them. And I would say I'm a little more laid back than that. And I encourage people to be kind of self-led and self-guided as much as possible. But, and online learning, I guess, allows for that a little more. You know, I can't, I can't necessarily guarantee that the person that's on the other end of the zoom call is actually listening when they turn off their camera and I can't see them. And, you know, like th there's some, some amount of responsibility that's on their part that I just, I can't control. <laughs> so that's been an adaptation for sure. Um, and it also alleviated me from this idea that I have to perfectly deliver this information in order to keep people engaged. Like they, they have to decide they want to be there too. Um, and that's the, that's the truth always, but I feel like that's really heightened in this online format. Well, yeah, there's lots of, you know, added distractions, um, when you're taking a class at home, mm -hmm. whether you've got like a pile of laundry that's beckoning to you or some children or some pets that are beckoning to you, you know, the TV. Um, it can definitely be a challenge to stay focused when you're learning or working from home. Um, you know, you said that you prepare for the weekends by getting really grounded and really tuning into yourself so that you can 
um, kind of, you know, go to the, go with the flow, but also like tap into the, the mastery that you have on the subject. And I think especially now is a time when many people want to know how to, if they don't already feel grounded or to get grounded and tune into themselves um, so that they can have that confidence of, um, yes, you know, I know what I'm talking about. This is what I was made to do. So can you talk a little bit more about what you do to get grounded um, in yourself? Yeah. Um, well, I should, you know, just to give a fair picture and not to, you know, make it seem like that's something that really comes easily and naturally to me. Like the reason that I feel so compelled to get grounded is because my anxiety is so, is heightened. <laughs> so like <laughs> in anticipation of what's coming up and knowing, like recognizing I'm feeling really anxious about this. I'm worried that I'm not going to do a good job, that people are going to be bored, that I'm not going to be interesting enough, you know, or I'm going to forget something, whatever. That's the thing that becomes my signal. Like, okay, you got to do some things to just help keep your feet on the ground. So just want to preface that by saying, you know, it's, it's a response to the fact that I acknowledge I'm feeling that stress. Um, and so it can feel quite difficult. And uh, I struggle with it just like I imagine any other person would. But um, I try to be more deliberate about how I book myself that week, um, mm -hmm. how much workload I put on myself in the days coming up to the weekend. Because the weekend itself, basically, it basically is like nine hours straight, two days in a row of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a, it is a lot. And, um, so I try to be, I try to be deliberate about blocking out a day or a couple of days where I would usually have work just so I can have some freedom in my time, um, to take a nap if I want or read some books or review my, review my notes or go for a walk in the woods or whatever. <laughs> um, but I actually find that the study of the content that I'm going to be covering, like the, the review of it or the um, going back to it, there's always, it always like creates an excitement in me where it reminds me, like I have to be discerning because what I can end up feeling is oh my gosh, I'm so anxious about this weekend because as I'm reading, I just go down this rabbit hole and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to cover this and I want to cover that. And I, oh no, there's too many things. I can't do it. And what it, what I've started to learn to do is actually just be reminded that this is a thing that I love. When I feel that heightened, you know, kind of butterflies in my stomach to maybe lean away from uh, assigning the label, oh my gosh, I'm very nervous to this is the kind of work that excites me. And so the actual review itself can, it's both stimulating, but it also just brings me back home to like why I'm doing it. And so it's important for me to be able to have time to just freely travel some of those roads of curiosity myself 
before I then get in front of a group of people and review the things. And oftentimes I review the things that I had already taught in previous years and, you know, like things that I know quite well, it wasn't anything new. Um, but it just kind of brings me back home to it. You mentioned, um, a little bit about just, um, like being perfect, like per, per, gosh, perfectly presenting. Um, and so, I'm curious to know your thoughts. And I talked with Jill Bartine about this in our interview recently. Um, And this was always something that I kind of held in like a state of cognitive dissonance, I guess, when I was really into yoga was that like this idea or this, um, this perfectionistic tendency that we have Mm -hmm. um, and this like, uh, type A striving kind of a an attitude as well or a value. Um, and then we kind of bring that into yoga and we want to do the pose perfectly or we can't do this pose um, right now, but we really want to and it's a goal. Um, but at the same time, we're supposed to have, you know, non-attachment um, to the result or to the outcome. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with, you know, perfectionism, setting goals, achieving goals maybe, and what that looks like on your yoga mat and in your yoga practice? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I hear you kind of bring up this idea of perfection culture in terms of poses and in, in, in asana, as we call it, like, you know, trying to find the perfect alignment that will never be injurious and will always bring enlightenment. And, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I can I know, I know that I went through a stage where I thought that my internalized understanding of, of yoga poses was that, but I honestly feel quite far from that in, in my current thinking. Um, Mm. and so I don't, I can't relate to it as well. I think, um, I, the, what I present in teacher training as far as poses go and what I do on my own mat and what it is I teach in my group classes, I think has shifted to being very sensation based and Mm. not so much form based. I do love the, some of the quote unquote, traditional methodologies, but traditional really means like the last hundred years in terms of poses, because they're all relatively new and they were pulled from gymnastics and things like that. But, you know, I love some of the practices that have set sequences and have sort of have a charted path for you to follow if you're trying to monitor progress and get better at understanding how your body moves and works. But what I present now is I I try very hard to not be dogmatic and to 
create the conditions in which students are left with more questions Hmm. uh, rather than feeling as though I have told them a definitive answer. Like I learned a long time ago that I'm not comfortable presenting myself as having a definitive answer to to questions when they're asked, especially as it relates to a body-based practice. So I think that my methodology has really steered towards sensation-based teaching. Um, And I'm trying to educate, in this case, adults um, on how to be better at feeling, acknowledging, um, and also taking some control or participating in the sensations of their body uh, so that they can start to transform something that originally was unpleasant into something at least tolerable or maybe something pleasant, pleasurable. Um, And that really comes down, I think, to what many people might call interoception or mind-body connection, um, or just plain old like self-awareness. Um, that's 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 where I've really shifted my goal. So we go we go over poses and all their names, and we use Light on Yoga as our resource with BKSA Angar and all that. But we really, I present it uh, in a way of of just seeing this as one lens of how someone developed a system for moving their body. And I also encourage questioning of it, or I point out contradictions, or I point point out things that for the general public are not achievable. You know, I, I think I present it with a critical eye, not as the quote unquote Bible of yoga that I think it sometimes gets referred to as you you you're meaning light on yoga yeah light on yoga yeah okay and it's a robust resource and I think that there's a lot in it that at least the first time or the second time or even the third time that I was exposed to it I think I didn't catch some of the nuance or the depth of it I just saw it like I saw it as a brown man in a loincloth with really long limbs doing all kinds of acrobatic things. And it didn't at all feel relevant to me in a lot of ways. But um, I've engaged and studied with that book, you know, in cycles over and over again. And there's a lot of philosophy in it in the beginning that that I don't think many people pay attention to. And I don't know. It's just, it's a, I find it to be a good resource as a starting point. And if somebody comes to a yoga training and they want to know yoga poses, well, those are called yoga poses. That's what people generally have agreed are yoga poses. So I'm going to teach them to them. Some of them, not all of them. (laughs) Some of them are just not necessary, (laughs) but yeah. But in terms of perfection, you know, otherwise in my own mat, my own body, I, I, I really feel like I've, I've just managed to move away from that in terms of my expectations of practice. Um, I'm really looking for 
my practice to result in me feeling like a better regulated person that can handle my life better. That's, that's what I'm looking for. And that's, that's the reason that I stick with yoga. Cause I, I mean, I know like you're an example of someone who had spent some time with yoga and got lessons from it, learned things from it, but then found that you wanted to kind of expand outside of that label. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, at times I feel that way too. Um, but I also feel free to include whatever interpretations of these kinds of practices that I see fit at this point. <laughs> like, no one has dubbed me, uh, you know, uh, given me permission to do that. I just... I just feel like I've made my peace with like, oh, okay, yoga is a word that means um, a body of practices that many people across the world have defined and redefined many times over, but it's, it's meant to give you some sense of mastery over how you move yourself, how you breathe, how aware you are of your mindset and your energy, um, you know, how you live your life and the choices you make to best support the life you want to have. I mean, it just feels very holistic. And, and so that's having that kind of broad definition has allowed me to continue to feel comfortable calling what I do yoga. And it is a a word that a lot of people are quite familiar with. They have an idea in their head of like, oh, okay, so yoga, that means I'm going to be on a mat. Uh there's going to be some, I'm going to be moving my body. And then there's also this idea of like the mind body component that, that this is somehow going to um, improve my whatever stress management skills, you know, whatever. Um, So it is a useful term. If you are putting people on a mat and telling them to move their bodies and, and to pay attention to certain things in an effort to mitigate, um, you know, stress or whatever X, Y, Z people are trying to work with. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, this is really funny to me. Um, so I don't know if you remember this or not, but at your baby shower, for Eli, um, your mom told us all a story about how, um, and some of the details are a little bit fuzzy, but your mom told us a story about how in school you had one teacher that like said that you talked too much. And then you had another teacher that like really kind of was like, you're fine, you Mm -hmm. know, like, Mm -hmm go for it. And then your mom ran into this teacher, this encouraging teacher later on, many years later, and she asked how you were. And your mom said, you know, she literally teaches, you told her it was okay to talk. And she literally teaches people how to talk. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That is a very like, that's, I think that's one of the defining stories of Kim and her childhood. <laughs> yeah. like, I, I've heard it many times and I've told it, I've told it myself too. Cause it does, it does have meaning. It was my first grade teacher and in kindergarten, I guess I had a lot of, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I got in trouble. I, I don't think I was 
shamed necessarily, although my parents did resort to lots of different strategies to try to help teach me like when it was appropriate to talk and when it wasn't, um, including things like tying a string around my finger that was supposed to be like a reminder, like a visual mm-hmm. reminder to kind of consider when I'm speaking or things like that. There was There was even, they had a code word that like if I was speaking out of turn or kind of hogging the air, so to speak, then the theory, the idea was that my mom would like say this word and it was supposed to be like a code word, like you need to calm down and not talk so much. Mm -hmm. So they, so some of that had already started. Um, but when I was in first grade, my teacher's name was actually Miss Love, which is so fitting. And she had been a kindergarten teacher her whole career, but this was like one of her last years teaching and she had always wanted to try teaching first grade. And so I was like the experimental year where she was a first grade teacher. And so I had her and yeah, I think the, the wording that my mom has used is that, you know, they had a parent teacher conference and one of the first things Miss Love said was, well, you know, Kim likes to talk a lot. And my mom was like, I know, I know, like we're trying to work on it and I know it's disruptive and da, da, da. And that Miss Love basically stopped her and said, Miss LaMonico, that is your daughter's gift. And I would never try to diminish the gifts of a child. And so of course my mom was like so relieved after, and now that I'm a parent, I can feel that even more like it can, it can get me a little tear jerked whenever I think about it. (laughs) I'm crying right now. (laughs) I know, I know it it definitely, I mean, and I didn't even hear this, you know, I I didn't, I wasn't witness to this, but when I, when I conjure it up, it, it definitely elicits a response from me, which I guess means that speaking, talking too much is a thing that has at times been brought up as a shortcoming or, or something I have to keep in check. So to hear someone say that and be so kind still has meaning to me now. But yeah, eventually, you know, I went on to um, college and then, and then pursued my master's in speech language pathology, which one of our, one of our areas of um, treatment is speech and articulation language, you know, someone's ability to communicate. And so at some point, my mom saw Miss Love out in the community. And I think the way the story is told is that when she told Miss Love that I had become a speech therapist, Miss Love's response was like, without skipping a beat, knew exactly what my mom was talking about and said, I told you that was her gift. Like, like, and this was a long time later. I mean, I was, I was in grad school, I'm pretty sure. So first grade to grad school. But apparently Miss Love was one of those kinds of educators. So yeah, I'm impressed you remember that story. It's so weird because it comes to me at like random times. I just think about that story sometimes. Like I won't even be thinking about you or anything like, like I won't, I don't know. It'll just come out of the blue. And it's so bizarre. It was a very, I mean, it's just, I think i I think at your baby shower, when your mom told that, I think I was just like, I think I came apart and just cried a yeah. lot. And I, I think it just like really stuck with me and I don't know why, but it's a really powerful story. Yeah, it is. I think, I think it's a story of, 
it's a story of a person really um, acknowledging and allowing for another person to be who they are and to to uplift them even if there is a chance that that particular trait of that person is sometimes disruptive or you know interrupts other people's intentions or other people's plans you know i think that's that's really it's just a very strong example of someone loving another person or someone being compassionate or someone just acknowledging the beauty of diversity, I guess, or like there being different strengths and different people. Um, and I, I think at least for me, I have never not responded well to someone affirming me, <laughs> like <laughs> who doesn't need that as much as possible? Like, Mm-hmm. every day you know it it's something that i think if it happened more often we would all be better off right so to hear it that way it's it's a nice little it's a nice little parable or a nice little story to mm-hmm. to demonstrate that how do you pay that forward mm. you know this is that's that's a really um, penetrating question. Um, (laughs) like, sorry, it's okay. I mean, it's not, it's not like intrusive or anything like that. It's, it's just a very, it's a very penetrating question. I, so I've spent a lot of time, I feel in recent years contemplating like what my purpose is and what my, what my gifts are, um, what it is that I have that I can offer other people. And, you know, at the beginning of this, we talked about all of my different titles right now. And there are a lot of people in my life that have had, I think, a hard time understanding. I think they have seen me pursuing so many different avenues of training and so many different hats, so to speak, as restlessness or not knowing who I am or um, just not sticking with something that was a perfectly good career, for example, like speech therapy. But, you know, when you had a good job and you had benefits and you're doing good things for people, like, isn't that enough for you? And the answer for me has been, I am really curious about my own capacity for learning new skills, which means that I'm constantly trying to learn new things. Um, But I also have spent a lot of my time trying to figure out how to be of service to other people. And I say that, like, I can't say that I'm entirely altruistic, like I'm doing these things to make my living, right? So I -hmm. haven't like renounced all my belongings and decided to like voyage into the hills and like, you know, I, I, like I haven't done that. So clearly I still have, um, self motivated reasons for doing this, but it feels very important to me in my work to connect with people. And I've found that I can do that in a lot of different ways. 
and I'm happiest when I have lots of different ways that I can do that. So for me, showing up to a 40-hour work week with one particular role and one particular hat was very confining. It felt like it didn't give me a chance to fully exercise all the things that I was interested in doing. And so instead, I tried to find, I diversified, you know, I left the full-time job with one thing and now I have bits and pieces of many and I get satisfaction out of all of them. Um, now the downside of that is sometimes I'm spread too thin and I'm trying to do too much. But for me, there's never been a question in my mind of my work needing to involve other people and, and doing things to help empower other people. Um, and so I guess that's how it has come through that particular lesson. You have um, mentioned on social media, and I remember having some conversations with you in the past about your health um, and, you know, your your energy level. And you were having a few like some symptoms that you were curious about. Um, and in this particular social media post, you, you know, you mentioned about how you had to really advocate for yourself and um, how your knowledge and self-awareness of your, of your own body and, and your own mental emotional state was really key in helping you to be that advocate for yourself. So um, could you talk a little bit about how, you know, the struggles, the health struggles that you were having and, um, what that felt like having to, um, really stand up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so other than, you know, run of the mill difficulties throughout, you know, my life, I would say I've always been a pretty healthy person. You know, I, I have been really fortunate not to have any underlying, chronic health conditions, um, at least for much of my life and to just enjoy a, pr a pretty healthy life, um, healthy body and healthy mind. Um, I didn't recognize that something was amiss in the way that needed further attention, I think for, for a few years. And, um, I have, so every, everything I think about this is kind of a hindsight assessment <laughs> and <laughs> I don't necessarily, um, I can't necessarily prove that this is the sequence of events or how this happened, but I'm pretty sure that while I was pregnant, I became anemic. I struggled with my energy levels. Then, um, I would feel completely exhausted, uh, every day, but you know, anybody who's ever been pregnant or knows someone who's been pregnant knows that that's a common complaint, right? Like you feel tired mm -hmm. when you're growing another human. It takes a lot of your resources and your body is working differently than it ever has before. And so I, I would say that, you know, I did the best I could to sleep as much as I could and take care of myself. Um, but that in hindsight is maybe one of the first signs that this was going on. And then 
Um, my delivery, his delivery resulted in me having, I guess, a little more bleeding than they would usually like is, and you know, it was all kind of a blur, but one of the nurses specifically said to me, you know, you're still bleeding and we're a little worried about it. And we're considering giving you a medication to help stop the bleeding. But then ultimately it stopped and they didn't give me any medication. And to my knowledge, um, I was never, I I don't have any recollection of any kind of blood work being done or anything to kind of check my levels. Um, but fast forward, I guess four years and I was really struggling with just debilitating fatigue on a daily basis and spent a lot of time believing that I was just working myself too hard or that I wasn't managing my stress well enough or that you know, maybe if I ate a little more organic vegetables or if I, you know, whatever, like changed my diet or this or that, you know, that, that I would then feel better. And, um, and it just wasn't, the needle wasn't really moving. Um, and so I raised it with my healthcare provider and said, you know, I just feel terrible every day. And their original response was, well, you're so healthy, like you're young, you're so healthy, you're so high functioning. You've been through a lot of stress in the last few years and, you know, stress takes its toll and, um, but you know, otherwise you're healthy. And I had, I don't know where it came into my mind to ask about iron deficiency, but I just mentioned it. I said, is there a way that we can check this? Because I've realized that my menstrual cycles are really heavy. I had real, I had in my poking around, I realized I was losing a lot more blood than is maybe ideal each month. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they agreed and that wasn't necessarily a struggle, but the initial, um, reaction of, Oh, but you're so healthy definitely made me feel at the moment, a little self-conscious, like, Mm. you know, maybe I am being ridiculous. Like I, you know, I do live an active lifestyle and maybe I'm just, I have unrealistic expectations of how life is supposed to feel. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I felt validated, incredibly validated. I mean, I think I actually cried when they called me and told me that, that I was severely deficient. And, um, Mm. so I started on a regimen of, of oral supplementation. I did a lot of other like diet changes and behavior changes to just really try to support my system for absorption and for, um, just better, like endocrine function, because it really all goes hand in hand, you know, um, stress does play a role on how of your organ, how all of your organs work, how your digestion works, how your endocrine system functions. And so I still acknowledged that I had very high stress, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I worked with that for about a year as, as proactively as I could. And my symptoms got worse. Um, I started experiencing shortness of breath when I was doing nothing. I would be sitting on the couch and feel short of breath. Mm. Um, I would get dizzy doing nothing where the room literally felt like it was spinning. Um, 
I started to experience, well, I had been experiencing it for a while, but it got markedly worse where any amount of exertion would result in a feeling of uh, like tingling in my limbs and like it would be very hard to even lift my legs. And there just was this constellation of symptoms that were getting worse and felt much more concerning. And um, I mentioned in the post that you're referring to that there were times and I, I really feared that there was some sort of underlying disease that no one was going to catch. And then by the time we figured it out, I'm going to, I was going to die. Like I, I really felt Mm -hmm. so bad that I just was like, I think I'm slowly dying and, and no one's going to know because I'm so healthy in every other way. (laughs) Like, I don't, yeah, I just, I, so that was kind of the epitome of, I mean, I hit, a a pretty hopeless feeling place. And, you know, now it's hard, it's hard for me to say that because I know that there are plenty of people who deal with chronic, um, incurable, irreversible things that leave them feeling bad in their body and in their mind for their whole life. And, um, but my experience at that time was, was I was feeling pretty hopeless. Like I, I wasn't sure what else to do for myself. And, um, ultimately I went back to that care provider. I expressed that things had not gotten better and in fact felt worse. I had done some research on, um, some options for treatment paths other than just oral supplementation. And my provider agreed, um, which was lovely. I then was referred to a hematologist who usually handles those kinds of treatments. And, I can't, I can't express how anxious I felt about whether they were going to think that I was totally, um, exaggerating that I didn't know what was going on in my body, that I just didn't understand that life was hard or whatever, you know, like I, I had a lot of anxiety about that. Um, and I should say that I work with physicians like regularly in my health and my hospital work. And I just know how easy it is because they're inundated with so many problems in people and they're managing so many conditions and they see so many patients a day that they, they can get on fatigue. And so a person like me who presents really healthy, it's just kind of hard sometimes I think to take it seriously when, when you're calibrated to seeing really like sick people elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I went in kind of prepared for them to maybe tell me that, that this was in my head or that this treatment option wasn't going to be appropriate for me because of how healthy I was otherwise. And the hematologist I went to was, was male, uh, but he had a nurse practitioner who was female and pretty quickly within the interview and intake process, they were both in the room she spoke up and just said, I absolutely think that you need an IV iron infusion, which I hadn't asked for. That was Mm -hmm. what I was prepared to ask for, but I didn't want to go in and present that I had like used Google to decide what it was that I needed. (laughs) You know, I wanted them to offer their own professional opinions, but it did Mm -hmm. not take long at all for her to just say, I absolutely think you need this. I think it will make you feel much better. And it was a huge relief. (laughs) I mean. And I, you know, I don't really know. I don't know how it would have gone had she not been in the room. Um, I don't know how it wouldn't have, would have gone if I hadn't 
been good at describing and articulating what it was I was feeling. Um, if I hadn't done the kind of work to know myself and to believe that this wasn't normal, you know, like I felt like I had a lot of resources and, and obviously a lot of privilege that set me up to be able to advocate that way. And Mm -hmm. I feel often like, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm aware that there are plenty of people that it doesn't go that way for. Um, so yeah, I got, I got the treatment I needed and, and I actually feel a million times better. Um, it's hard for me to believe actually that I've kind of carried on as long as I did with the way that I felt. (laughs) So Mm. I'm really relieved to have found an answer. I'm so glad. Was the, so was the relief pretty immediate? No, it was not. So the particular formulation that I had is usually delivered in two different doses. And, um, the nurse practitioner actually, so it's quite expensive and, you know, I'm self-employed and I use, uh, marketplace insurance and all that, which isn't cheap and has a high deductible. And, um, this treatment is very expensive, uh, given, given what it is, given that it's basically iron mixed in with some saline that gets injected in a very simple procedure. (laughs) Um, it's very expensive. And she was aware of that. And she said, you know, you are so healthy that it's like, uh, otherwise you are so healthy that one dose maybe will make you feel better. Um, and maybe you won't need the second round and we can save you that money. And so let's space it out more than we usually would. Um, and I really appreciated her providing that option. Uh, and, and that's my overall sense of it. There still was a little bit of that feeling that I had the very first time I brought it up with the first provider where I was told that I was so healthy and I was like, well, you should try feeling how I feel and then (laughs) decide if you think I'm healthy or not, you know, but Mm -hmm. so there was a little bit of that, but, but ultimately I was, I was happy that she was trying to work with me and make it easier on me. Um, but I did the first dose and I noticed nothing. Like I did not feel better at all. Uh, and then she had given me the option to come back in for the second dose. And I said, I, I would like to. And when I talked to the nurse in that encounter, she said, oh yeah, most people don't say that they feel better until the second round. Um, they usually oh. say the first round doesn't make a difference, but the second one does. So I was really glad that I decided to, cause I could have easily just said, this isn't working and quit, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I did the next round and it wasn't night and day all of a sudden, but I would say maybe three weeks after I got it, there was just this slow change. And eventually one day I realized that it had been several days since I had had the overwhelming desire to lie down. It was like, oh, I've carried on for like three or four days now and not had that window of time where I feel like I can't hold my body up anymore. Hmm. And this particular issue in my body, it wasn't sleepiness like I need to take naps, even though I would do that because I thought it would make me feel better it was just fatigue, like body fatigue. And I really feel like the term bone tired 
is referring mm. to this because you know your bone, your your blood is actually made in your bones, mm-hmm. and your iron stores is in your are in your bones too. So the type of iron that was missing in my body was storage iron. And so the, the iron that was like floating freely throughout my circulatory system was pretty normal, but my stored iron was Mm. gravely low, like really terrible. And I really feel like maybe that's where this term bone tired came from. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Just this feeling that I couldn't hold my body up anymore. Um, So yeah, that after a few days of that not happening, I was like, oh my gosh, this is working. And I didn't, I stopped Mm -hmm. having shortness of breath. I stopped having dizziness. Um, It's been pretty dramatic. I'm, I'm so grateful that I had an option. (laughs) I'm so grateful. I am just sitting here like, holy cow. Like how in the world have you done everything that you've done? I don't know. And you know, like, you know, you know how hard it is to like parent when you've got like the stomach flu or something, you know, it's like fucking miserable, but like, this is different because you're like, I don't know when this is going to end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, early on, I just got through it because I convinced myself that this was to be expected. You know, I nursed my kid for a year and a half, which of course probably exacerbated my deficiency because your body will Mm -hmm. prioritize getting the nutrients to your baby over retaining them within yourself. Um, And this is all, so like this is, and again, if you talk to the right physicians, they'd probably be like, this is woo-woo stuff, but this is something that in hindsight, I feel like is a constellation of things that were signals that nobody caught. But I got my very first cavity of my whole entire life while I was nursing my son. And I just can't help but wonder if that wasn't in part related to the underlying deficiencies that I had. I mean, if iron is deficient, then many other things can be too. Because if the cause is that you're bleeding heavily, then you lose all kinds of stuff. It's not just iron. Um, Mm. So I can't help but wonder if that was a signal, a sign. Um, But yeah, I, I just for so long thought this is what's to be expected. And in a lot of ways, I think I just pushed myself harder because you know, I had this feeling of like, just buck up, you know, like you can mm-hmm. do this. And, um, after the initial year and a half of sleep deprivation and nursing and working full time and all that, um, tapered off, um, I decided to buy a business, you know, my husband, <laughs> no big whoop. my husband, and I bought a house, um, I, I went, I've gone through a, like not a divorce through a separation. So I've had a lot of stressors and I, I feel like I've had a healthy amount of awareness. Like you're going through a lot of stressful things. I, I felt like I wasn't ignoring that. You know, I didn't think that I was just ignore, ignore, you know, suppress it, push it down, pretend like it's not happening. Like I, I actually think I was doing a great job of emotionally processing. I would cry often and I would, do body-based practices. And I went to a therapist and I had really healthy friendships with people who listened to me and let me talk about what was going on and offered support and insight. So I don't think that I was just ignoring that I felt unwell. 
um, I think I just didn't have the right answer at that moment. I don't, I just didn't have the thing the the thing that needed to be corrected in order for me to feel better. I remember a conversation that we had, um, at the glowing body. And I think it was actually like my, at my like going away party from the glowing body, which is interesting. Um, but the, we were talking about the book by Christian Northrup, Women's Bodies, Women's yeah, Wisdom. And, yeah. and you mentioned that having really heavy periods, um, she says that it's like a sign or not, not, not a sign, but like maybe a correlation. Mm-hmm. I can't, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. To, to not having joy in your life mm-hmm. and pleasure. I think that was another thing was like pleasure and joy. Mm-hmm. And that definitely, so like, you know, I was seeking out information from both. Cause I mean, I, I highly value modern medicine. I work in a hospital. Like I'm, I, I value it. And I also value the, the holistic wisdom that comes from many, many different medicine, um, practices around the world, you know, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, all kinds, you know, I, I believe that there's wisdom in that. And I believe that there can be both that you can pull from both. And so when I was going through this, I was trying to both, uh, entertain like very modern allopathic approaches, but also to consider how all of me needed to heal and what parts of me needed to heal. And, um, I do think that, you know, I am very motivated by my work life. That is a realm in which I feel a lot of satisfaction and I feel a lot of purpose. But the downside of that is it can mean that I put other things aside that are necessary in order to be a well-balanced person. Mm. And it's hard for me sometimes to maintain the awareness of around, around my work being important, like the the truth that it can be important work that I'm doing and that there is more to life than that. And I have to build in time and space for me to enjoy those simple pleasures and to have those kinds of connections and um, opportunities to be with people I love. And, um, and so, yeah, looking in that book, I think was my effort to leave no stone unturned in all of the realms in which I needed to pay attention. And so it definitely was a helpful bit of information to have come across it. How are you finding joy or taking simple pleasures these days? I have, so I guess this is a plus side of the pandemic um, in some ways. I mean, granted in the early days of the pandemic and the early months, um, there was a lot of stress trying to figure out how to adapt our business and keep it viable while the dust was settling, like while we were actually getting a handle on the nature of this disease and how it spreads and the adaptations we needed to make in our lives in order to mitigate risk and to mitigate 
harm to other people, um, there was a lot of stress in trying to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and so I can't say that I, that that stage was better, (laughs) but, um, I had actually been planning to try to block out July this year as sort of a sabbatical month, like just totally clear my schedule and become unavailable to anyone but my family and, you know, maybe find a pleasurable trip to go on, like go to the beach and just, but really to just be myself and, and not have outside demands. Um, but the pandemic kind of created some of those conditions. Um, once, once we got a new model set up for the business, um, and had worked out some of the initial kinks, um, there, there was a time where it was easier for me to just take a day where I didn't open my computer or go into my workplace. Um, and, and part of that too was like the hospital didn't need me during that time. So I was, I guess they never use the term furlough, but I I was pretty much furloughed because I'm, I'm not a full-time employee there. Um, and so I wasn't needed there. Otherwise I would have probably been pursuing that work more in order to make money, (laughs) but (laughs) there just were these conditions that presented themselves. And I tried to do my best to embrace it as a different kind of sabbatical. Um, and so I've tried to make sure I'm walking most every day. Um, I've tried to make sure I put down my phone or my computer, although, you know, I'm not always successful with that, but, um, I've tried to make myself less available on demand. And that has even mean meant, um, not responding to emails for way longer than really is probably professionally acceptable. (laughs) But I've just tried to like set a new bar in terms of people's access to me. Um, And then when I have those times, I, I try to just enjoy whatever it is I'm doing, whether it be watching a series on Netflix or watching my kid draw or walking my dog. Um, I've done a fair amount of connecting with people and sitting on a porch or, um, going on a walk with a friend, things like that. Just trying to stay present with whatever it is you're doing at the moment Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, being distracted by thoughts of other things. Yeah. I mean, when you run a business, everything is your, basically comes down to you, right? Like you are the final, final stop. And, um, I really don't know where I heard this. It might've been from my business partner, Kelly Scott, um, some version of it, but maybe I heard it somewhere else. I don't know. It's not like an entirely, um, earth shattering quote, but for me, it was something that really made sense to me. And, and I took note of that when you are your own boss, there's no one else that will like decide for you that you take vacation. There's no one else that will provide that opportunity. 
you know, you're not, you're not accruing paid time off. (laughs) You know, it's not like, you know, I know when I had my benefited job and I was getting paid time off, it was like a reminder. Once I saw that accumulation, oh, I have 40 hours of paid time off. I should use it. You know, I need to go to the beach for a week or I need to use this time. You know, there's, there's no parameters. There's no structure for that. Uh, that exists when you're your own boss. And so just like everything else is your responsibility, it is completely your responsibility to decide when you take a break. And it will never happen if you don't decide it. Um, And so I've been trying to be more mindful of that and to give myself the opportunity to see that things won't fall apart just because I step away for a week or even for 24 hours or 48 hours, or if I don't respond to that particular email or things like that. I remember having, where, okay, we were at UT Gardens and it was you and Eli and it was me and Audrey. And I think I was, I think I was pregnant. Hmm. I think I was pregnant with Cohen. And we were there like just, playing and having a snack or something. And you mentioned that the previous owner of the studio had basically said, you should buy the studio. And you were just, you know, we just talked about it and, and everything. And it seemed you were like really considering it. And you seemed like really, you, uh, uh, this is something about you, like, though, that's just like a you thing. I think it's like um, if you do tend to get swept up in an emotion, you very quickly express that, like, the limitations of that. Like, you don't seem to let yourself get very carried away. Um, and so you were like, you know, excited. I could tell you were really excited and that you really wanted it. But you were also kind of like checking yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, logically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about how it felt to be on the precipice of like making that decision of, do I want to buy the studio? Um, in a way it kind of, you know, felt like you were coming full circle mm-hmm. because you really had been there since the beginning. Um, so yeah, I can just talk yeah. about that time. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I don't remember that, but (laughs) that was probably when I was in the throes of like the worst of my deficiency. And one of the symptoms is memory problems. And, and I Mm. definitely have struggled with memory problems over the last few years. So I don't remember that, but I don't doubt you either. And it, it rings very true for me. Like it sounds and feels very true for me when you talk about hearing me say that I was both excited, but then also kind of immediately checking that, like that is definitely a classic Kim thing. Um, <laughs> classic Kim. I think one of my strengths <laughs> is that I can try to examine all sides, but it can sometimes be, uh, it can sometimes work against me because I don't, I'm not always able to immediately just feel in my gut what I feel without first like cross-examining myself 50 different times. And the goal of it is not really to undermine myself. It's more just to like make sure I've come to a really sound decision. Um, And oftentimes I still end up 
at my gut decision, but at least I feel like I've vetted it. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. And maybe I would be better off if I just stuck with my gut more often and didn't do all the other stuff. But um, yeah, so I, you know, I landed at that studio when I moved to Knoxville for graduate school. It happened to open the month that I arrived in Knoxville and I had been looking um, for a studio. Someone had told me that there was a studio opening. And, um, I, as soon as I walked into the space, I felt a great sense of connection and a great, um, a level of comfort there that like, yeah, this was going to be a place for me. And so I got involved immediately and I started as a desk employee and also started teaching, um, but mostly was behind the desk. And then of course was doing my graduate program. But then in, which is another Kim trait is that I, I didn't really wait for anybody to give me more responsibility. I just started taking it. Like I just started routinely organizing the cabinets and creating a updated manual on how to do things, you know, at the front desk and da, 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 you know, like I just started doing those things because that's what I do. And so there came a time when the person who was managing it was moving away from the position and, um, it felt very natural for me to take over as the manager. And I, and I did that for a few years, but ultimately there was, there were some like organizational issues and there was a lack of, really of, of resources available to me kind of late in the game as the manager. And I, I became burned out. I became really fatigued and was resenting my work there. Um, and I say all that, like my employer at the time is someone that I love dearly and I take a lot of inspiration from. So it wasn't, it was, it's not like a individual insult or anything like that. It's just, I had hit a limit for what my abilities were and what my capacity was for doing it. And she was in the process of trying to sell it. So I think her energy had been withdrawn from it as well. Um, and so there was just kind of this natural conclusion that arrived whenever the second owner bought it. And so then I switched to um, spending more time with my degree and doing practicing speech pathology, but I still taught continuously and it was still a big part of my income, but also just a big part of how I cared about spending my time. Um, but I, I will say like, after having managed it, I, I had no misgivings about running a yoga studio being some sort of idyllic job. I mean, <laughs> I knew that you're still going to be dealing with people who are impatient and, um, critical that you are hard to make happy. Um, I knew that you were going to be dealing with coworkers who had their own grievances, um, or their, you know, idiosyncrasies that made them hard to work with. I knew that there's a lot of cost that goes into running a space like that. And that it's something that can be quite hard to actually turn any kind of profit on. Um, and so I think it had been, someone had mentioned to me at some point, like the possibility of like, would you ever own a yoga studio? Would you ever, like, if you had the chance to take over Glowing Body, would you? 
And I responded with like a very emphatic no, like, like hell no, I would not because that is not why I got into yoga. And I, I have no misgivings about that job, like about running a studio. And so when it was posed to me by that second owner that she was ready to move on, she was ready to let go. Um, and that she really preferred that someone who knew the place and loved the place, um, would take it on. And I wasn't her first choice, by the way, there were a few other people that were first in line, but for whatever reason, (laughs) they were unable, um, at the time or not interested at the time. And so I think I was like third or fourth (laughs) on the list. Um, but my first response was like, I can't do this. Like, no, you know, that was what I was kind of thinking and feeling in my head. Like, you know how much work this is, you know how hard it is, but it just, it, I just became infected with the, it was like a bug had been planted and, um, I wasn't really enjoying the corporate life, you know, having to clock in and out at a certain time every day and having to just you know, earn your, your time off, like just constantly checking your balance to see when you could take a vacation. You know, it just, it didn't, Mm -hmm. it didn't feel good to me. Um, I was also in the throes of, I had a, a newborn slash infant. Um, there just were a lot of things. And I think I was, I was struggling to, with feeling satisfied and happy with my life. Um, and it was just, I guess the right timing for me to consider that this might be a way to bring different meaning to work I was doing. And, um, I was a little disenchanted with the healthcare field and, you know, there's a lot of limitations and a lot of ways in which that system is dysfunctional. And when I evaluated my value system, you know, something that I believe in and, prioritize and want to impart to other people is, is health and like health on a, on a robust full being level. And so it really felt like running a studio was actually a great way to possibly live that out. Um, so I don't know, at some point I acknowledged that the job of running the studio before had been quite hard, but that owner was different than manager. And, uh, the thing that kind of sealed the deal was when I found someone who was interested in being a business partner and sharing some of that risk and that responsibility just made me feel not so crazy or alone on taking it on. (laughs) And that was the thing that kind of pushed it over the edge. And then it, then it was like, just obvious that this was the thing I needed to do. And how, you know, important that you and Kelly had each other because, you know, since you both have taken ownership of the studio, there's been big, big things that have happened in your life and in her life. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, uh, I think it would have been really hard to be doing it on your own. I feel like, I mean, it's not quite this extreme, but I definitely at times have likened this business partnership to like another marriage. Like I have another marriage. <laughs> um, 
things have ebbed and flowed in terms of, you know, how involved we have to be with each other on a day-to-day basis. And there's times when um, we're in a good rhythm at the studio and we've had the kind of support staff that we needed to be able to just keep it running. And so we haven't had to interact a lot. And there's been other times when we've had to really work at our relationship with each other. And, you know, there's been all the ups and downs of being in a relationship and having something that you have such significant responsibility over kind of like a child, you know, um, Mm -hmm. except the studio kind of feels like many children because there's all the teachers (laughs) and the therapists and the people there that you're trying to like keep the, you're trying to keep the family happy, you know, and then there's Mm -hmm. the customers and there's, you know, like the students and, um, But I do feel some, like when I reflect upon the way things have unfolded in my time at Glowing Body, it has all felt kind of predestined, you know, like, not that I, I'm I'm not really someone who thinks that our lives are predetermined or anything like that, but there are many things about it that have just been so timely for me personally, as I've developed as an adult and gone through the milestones of a life. And in a lot of ways, glowing body is the symbolic um, home for me that I have at times wanted to reject entirely. And at times have felt like I never want to leave and, Um, it's really nice to feel like I've managed to, to maintain the relationship with that place that I have for the last 12 years now, uh, has, it has meaning to me. I think that there's a lot of people in our community that feel the same way about the glowing body. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why it's still going 12 years, you know, I think so. I don't know that we, you know, there's plenty of mistakes and there's plenty of triumphs and, you know, there's lots of great things about it. And there's also lots of limitations about the place. But um, for those that have made connections there, it, yeah, it's a home. It's a home of sorts, a home away from home. Um, So, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you've been splitting, um, time caring for your son Mm -hmm. with your ex Mm -hmm. 50 50 Mm -hmm. and you know that in and of itself like has its own benefits and challenges but then when you add a a global pandemic onto it yeah (laughs) it kind of shakes the jar a little bit more um so I I'm curious to know how, and, and to, you know, everybody has different risk thresholds Mm -hmm. around COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, people are, are taking, making different choices based on their own unique situations. And sometimes regarding, sometimes with regard or care for others, um, sometimes not. Um, so, you know, how has it been kind of getting on, maybe getting on the same page as far as the risk assessment that um, you and your ex are, you know, willing to take and, you know, sharing. 
because are you kind of like in a pod almost or well, you know so I remember how I talked earlier about like not being very authoritarian <laughs> I <laughs> I we you know there are things that I very explicitly discuss in all kinds of different realms of my life and you know maybe even discuss to a fault where it's like okay we've talked about this enough but we have not taken the approach of having very strong parameters around, um, potting or distancing. Um, there have been conversations about, you know, who, um, his dad spends time around, which really he's, he spends a lot of time on his own. So that isn't, hasn't been as much of a thing for him. Um, and Eli's grandmother lives here too. So he gets to spend time with her, but she has, she's isolated because obviously she's older and feels more vulnerable. Um, and so she's, she's done that for herself, but I'm really, honestly, I'm the one in the family that has the most contact with others. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, throughout the pandemic, I, I, well, I, since I have been back to work, which really happened at the end of June, I've easily been in close contact with I don't know, a hundred people, you know, like mm-hmm. I have had bodywork clients. I've worked at the hospital and on any given day there, I can be close to tens of people, you know, it just depends. I mean, now granted in the hospital, I have all the protective equipment I need at my disposal. Um, not that I'm careless with it, but it's there and I use it the way it's intended to be used. So that risk is minimized. Um, so I'm the one in the family really that has the most to gain from spending time outside of any kind of pod or limited group. Um, but no, I, we, you know, my son has returned to his school, which is entirely outdoors. Um, and that has always been the model of the school. It, it was founded that way. So it wasn't a reaction to the pandemic that, you know, made them move everything outside. It's, it's how the school is designed. So we felt there was very little hesitation on our part in sending him back to that. It, it definitely made sense for his socialization, his health um, and stimulation and his education. I mean, he's still a preschooler, so we have a little leniency there. Um, he's not yet dug into a lot of the academic skills, but, um, we've been pretty trusting of one another really to, to make those judgments. And there, there hasn't been a lot of express conversation about it. I'm curious to know, like I've, I've, I've talked with people throughout my life who have, um, you know, gone through separation, gone through divorce and who have felt that their relationship with their former spouse improved. Mm. Um, and so like, I'm curious to know, you know, you just mentioned there's some, a lot of implicit trust, Mm -hmm. um, around this particular area. Um, yeah. What's what's that like? Is that is that a continuation of of trust that you had in one another? And if this is too personal, no, you don't I mean, have I, to I think I can address it without without crossing any lines that I'm comfortable with. I I um, are uncomfortable with. I find that um, Eli's dad and I 
are very good in terms of like practical management of, of, um, responsibilities and like maintaining the home was never a problem, things like that. So I do think our sensibilities as far as decisions like this go are pretty similar. And so it hasn't, it hasn't presented a reason for conflict in making those kinds of co-parenting decisions. And we've really, I think, successfully prioritized our child and his well-being um, that like a sign of our success together or apart is that we have a well-adjusted and happy kid um, because mm-hmm. ultimately a well-adjusted and happy kid is a reflection of the parents. I mean, to some degree, you know, like if, mm-hmm. if he and I were yeah. at each other's throats and weren't getting along and I was poorly regulating myself and I was, you know, a total wreck, then, then I believe that, you know, that would be reflected some in, in my kids' demeanor and mindset. And so, um, I think that it has been really valuable for us to just keep our child and sharing those responsibilities as a commonality and as something that unifies us and keeps us, keeps us close and keeps us friendly with one another. Um, because it's a priority. It's important. I still remember the first time I got to hold Eli. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Well, you and I both were around for each other's children, really. I mean, I, yeah, I was pretty early to see both Audrey and Cohen. Well, you were like, I, I was the first, you were the first person to see, to see Cohen. Yeah. Yeah, Because you were, you were there like in the hospital. Yeah. 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 And then you were, you came over really, really soon after Audrey was born too. It feels feels important (laughs) to me to say though, that I didn't like, like, uh, bum rush your door while you were in the hospital. It wasn't like, (laughs) it wasn't like I'm here at the hospital. So I demand to see your baby. I asked, I got consent. Yeah. I got consent. I got permission. (laughs) I was like, Hey, I'm in the hospital. I'm open if you're open. But yeah, I, um, I know it's really sweet. It's very sweet. And yeah, you, I feel like, did you get to hold Eli at my house? Is that where it happened? Did you come over? Yeah, I came over because, um, you know, you, I remember he was in the NICU, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I remember like, you know, we were bringing some food over to you or to your house one time. And then I think this was maybe shortly after he got home Mm -hmm. from the NICU. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it directly, but I, again, I believe you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My memory was really bad for a long time. Um, Oh yeah. But I do remember being in the hospital room with you after you had your children. I believe Mm -hmm. I have distinct memories of both of them. Cause they're so beautiful. (laughs) And Eli too is such a beautiful baby. Oh, well, and it's always special. Like when you have known someone pre kids and then you maintain a relationship of some kind after they have kids, you know, it's, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, there's been a few friends that I have here in Knoxville that, it's not that we're necessarily best friends or that we talk every day or we see each other that often or anything, but 
there's just these big life milestones that we've witnessed for one another. And it can be kind of nice to almost have that as like a, just a check-in point, you know, like, so even in this conversation, having you remind me of scenarios in which we've overlapped and shared part of our stories with each other and, you know, witnessed each other's growth or each other's changes. I mean, that's really, that's really comforting, you know, to have Mm. people like that around you in the periphery, even it's just, it, it create, you know, that's what contributes to a sense of belonging. I think we all need that. Yeah. I mean, I'm like over here with tears streaming down my cheeks um, because I'm, I'm really thankful that we are getting to talk today. Um, You know, with, with COVID we've been very isolated. Um, We've been a little bit more on the anxious side with it because of Travis's asthma. Mm -hmm. Um, And also um, my dad is going to be, 80 in January. And we, you know, have, we're starting to make plans of like, well, what are we going to do when we're going to go and visit him? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, just trying to think about stuff like that. Um, and it's been, I've been feeling lonely and I'm thankful that I have this podcast to, Mm -hmm. um, I get to have regular like scheduled conversations with women that are inspiring and interesting. And, um, so I'm so thankful for that. And just to, you know, in talking to you to be reminded of, of all of these times when we have overlapped and witnessed for one another, it's, um, it's a lovely reminder. Yeah. There's some really amazing, I mean, this is part of the heart of your podcast, which is what makes it so awesome, you know, is that you're, you're attempting to really, it seems to me like you're just attempting to kind of piece together or like draw lines between this constellation of women around Knoxville that are doing great things, you know, and it's happening, I believe in every community all over the world, you know, there's, there's, there's always stories of really amazing people doing really amazing things, especially women. And, you know, Knoxville just happens to be the place that you're in and you have the connections and, um, the demeanor to be able to pull people into conversation and, you know, that's the magic of this podcast is, is creating those kinds of connections for people. And I've listened to some of your other episodes and some of the women are people I know and have even spent like time with extensively. And I would call them friends and, you know, um, and then there's others who are just women that I've admired from afar and have thought what they're doing is, is really interesting. And, um, there's definitely been times when I've listened to stories of either people I've known well or not known well on your podcast even. And there's just, it, it creates a sense of enthusiasm about living here and being the kind of person who's trying to make some meaning out of my work. Um, and yeah, the, the relationships like yours, like yours and I, mine that, um, have extended through years and through many iterations of what our life looks like, you know, 
I think it's crucial to be able to touch in with those every so often. You don't have to, you don't have to maintain a closeness for every little detail of your life to be able to appreciate the way that another person has grown or flourished or struggled or whatever. And yeah, I, th- I feel really grateful too, that you have included me in, in this kind of conversation. And, and it's felt really personal and really heartening to have you reflect some things back to me that you've seen and heard about me over the years. It's kind of, it's kind of nice. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Well, I just have one last question for you. Okay. Um, I think I know what question and, this is. Yeah, I mean, question, I'm sure you. Can, I'm sure you can guess. Yeah. So <laughs> go ahead, lay it on me. I need to hear you say it. <laughs> you can um, choose to tell us about a time when you insisted on yourself or on getting your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can tell us about a time when you insisted on the success of another woman. Hmm. Um, so I'll be honest that I have heard your podcast enough times to know that you ask these questions. And when I first found out that I was going to be interviewed, I was like, okay, you got to prepare your answer for this. Like you need to know <laughs> what you're going to say. So it sounds really good. And I was like, okay, I'm going to plan in advance. So I know. And then I didn't. Because I was like, that would be very inauthentic, you know, like I had hoped that um, there would be something in the conversation that would really stimulate or remind me of a time. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a specific instance. I know that, especially with my work in Glowing Body, that I have made deliberate efforts and they sometimes have fallen flat and they sometimes haven't really panned out like I thought they would, but I have definitely made strong efforts to support the women that work around me. I feel a Mm -hmm. high sense of responsibility as the quote unquote boss to take care of the women that are in our midst and to make sure that I'm really trying to value them in the way that they should be valued. And so sometimes that's meant, um, offering a pay raise when it would have been easy to just keep things like they were because as a studio, we're not exactly making high profit margins. And in some cases, um, extending more money to another employee there might mean that, that my pay takes a hit. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't know for sure sometimes whenever I'm making those kinds of plans, but it's possible. Um, but there, that's one thing in particular I can think of is like intentionally, um, giving more pay to someone who has clearly earned it, even though it has sometimes meant committing myself in a way that is scary or that I'm not quite sure that I can keep up. Um, Mm -hmm. because I, I really, I have so appreciated the times that someone has done something like that for me. And so it's just important for me to do that for other people. And this is something that just gets me like so fired up. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, I have really appreciated um, your approach to you know community care and the the care of the community that you have established at the Glowing Body um, throughout this pandemic. And you know, when I hear you say that you have extended a pay raise when 
it meant that you didn't get as much money and that maybe felt a little scary. Um, and then I hear on the news about such and such CEO made like $1.4 billion in one day. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. their employees are making like barely minimum wage or not even a living wage, yeah. you know, like that, that pisses me off. Yeah. Um, well, that, and I mean, so, that, that is something that kind of plagues me at times as a business owner. And it's, I mean, I won't, you know, yes, I can definitely get behind like getting real pissed off about stuff like that. <laughs> but I think it, it, it has really, um, I have really tried to rise to the challenge of having those expectations for myself as an owner regardless of whether another place that is just like us, you know, and by that, I mean like another yoga studio or another massage place that pays differently. Um, if I have mm -hmm. knowledge of that, like I, I always try to recenter on like what would make me feel valued if I was a person in that spot. And again, I mean, if I could pay everyone, you know, a million dollars a year, I would, obviously that doesn't work for the way the book's go. Like if the money is not there, it's not there. And, and that's been a learning curve for me as a business person to understand. I mean, it sounds so simple, but I have had a lot of growing pains around understanding finances in that if the money isn't there, you cannot spend it. doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how altruistic your desire is. It doesn't always you can't just ho cross your fingers and hope that that money will show up. Like if it's not there, it's not there. And the thing that you have to do is be a steward of the space or else like nobody has a job. Right. But, mm -hmm. but I have tried to like examine what might be, um, just a limiting belief or like a narrow way of seeing the way that I can, be a leader in that space. And I think perhaps one of my strengths is being willing to take some risks sometimes that might impact me personally because I have a strong, I don't know, I don't know that it's a moral compass, but like I just feel this sort of responsibility to the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's that's the way I know in which I, I insist on other people's success. And I, I do it on an ongoing basis, like not in one, not in one big stand, you know, but like day to day trying to, trying to make choices that aren't just centered on, on my success. Mm. And it's something that makes being a business owner so much more fulfilling and enriching when you can put your values into practice, not just in your own life, but in a way that's in your business that affects the lives of the the community that your business serves. Um, yeah. I mean, that to me, that is like, I mean, there's lots of motivations, I'm sure. But to me, when I examine why I'm doing this, that is the core motivation. Like, I want to be able to decide how I engage with myself, with my employees, with my students, with my community. Like, it's a high level of personal responsibility. And sometimes it can feel like a really heavy burden and a really lofty goal. But 
right now, and maybe it's in my youth, you know, I'm in, I'm only in my thirties and all that. Like I'm still making my mark on the world, but right now I can't imagine why anyone would run their own business unless they have that desire in their heart. But I guess get back to me in five or 10 years and see if I, <laughs> you know, see if this, this is just me being naive. Um, I also really like being able to pay my mortgage. So that yeah. is a thing that I have to also consider, but somehow, <laughs> somehow I'm making it. I've so far I've made it happen. So. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not homeless yet. <laughs> not yet. Are you, are you still comfortable in that closet? I am. It's a little warm in here now, but. I always get sweaty when I do interviews. Oh, really? You know, so, yeah, I'm over here crying and sweating and <laughs> all of the things. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a full on emotional release. I mean, maybe I should send you an invoice. Yeah. Please don't. No, I won't. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, you were talking earlier about how this is like a social outlet and it totally is. And I do think that I have learned that one of my non-negotiable like self-care items is having meandering conversations with women that I want to be around. Mm. I don't do it on the podcast because I don't have one, but I definitely have. That's what I was saying earlier. Like that's something that I have built in in my life. Like I absolutely 100% have to have unofficial therapy sessions with, with women whose opinions I care about. So Mm. it's, it's therapeutic, man. We have to stick together. You know, we're stronger together. And even though a lot of us have different things going on in our lives or ways that we're there's, you know, there's variety, Mm -hmm. but we still have, when you get down to the emotions that we are experiencing, on the day to day, those are the same. Yeah. Yeah. There is. There's a lot, there's a lot to be said for being able to hear yourself and other people. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm so appreciative of of your time yeah. and thanks for having me. Our conversation. Yeah. Well, you know that I Thank like you. I love to talk, so I don't shy away <laughs> from chances. So I'm always down for an interview. <laughs> We'll do a part two sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. We all have those friends that we love a lot and respect, but they're maybe not showing up in our recent text history or we're not in the habit of communicating the smaller details of our lives with them. You know those friends? Maybe it's been a minute since you've checked in with them. I encourage you to do that. Send them a message on social media or a text. Set up a porch hang or a walk and talk. Or buy some stamps, save the post office, and send them some snail mail. Everybody loves getting mail that's not a bill or a pre-screened credit card offer. In this time when our sense of community has maybe been disrupted, it's super important to stay connected and you and your friend will probably both feel better for it. If you're feeling enriched and supported and maybe even a little brave as a result of this show, please consider supporting in sisterhood by becoming a patron. 
When you join us on Patreon, you have the opportunity to join the conversation by submitting questions for future guests. I also offer a monthly virtual hangout for my Insister A-listers so we can continue the conversation and go deeper. There's even a membership level for the go-getters out there looking to grow their businesses via sponsorship. Learn more and become a patron today at patreon.com slash insisterhood. Don't forget to head on over to our website, insisterhoodpod.com, and click merch on the nav bar to pre-order your Insister swag. So excited. You have until September 30th. The clock is ticking. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you'll tune in next week for another Real Talk conversation with an inspiring gal. Really, I insist. (laughs) 